Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister here at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. It is my pleasure to welcome today's guest speaker, Mr. Walter Mondale. For 30 years, the Town Hall Forum has offered its programs as a service to the community. All of our events are free and open to the public. This long tradition is made possible by gifts from friends and supporters from people such as yourselves. If you'd like to be a donor to the forum and to continue this wonderful tradition now for 30 years, we invite you to pick up a donation envelope. You'll find those at the doors as you exit, and I know many of you do that each time we have a forum, and we are indeed grateful. You'll also find sign-up sheets for our seasonal brochures, email alerts if you want to look for those lists as you exit. We can encourage you to be a regular communicator with the forum. I'd like to welcome today students in our audience, in particular the classes in the balcony. Do I see this? Is this the Theory of Knowledge class from Southwest High School? Dick Schwartz, welcome. And then from the English as a, uh, English as a Second Language Center in St. Paul, where is that group? Uh, over here, okay. This is Brenda Ellingbow has brought those students. We're glad you're all here today, and we expect to have you as lively participants in this public conversation. When you entered this morning, you received an index card, a yellow index card. We would like you to use that to record a question that uh, you can send forward for the speaker. The ushers will collect those cards at the end of Mr. Mondale's opening remarks. I will then ask as many of them as we can of the Vice President. The Town Hall Forum is pleased to partner today, as we always do, with the news and information stations of Minnesota Public Radio. Some 60,000 listeners will hear today's forum on NPR. In just a moment, I will receive a signal that we're ready to record this program today. We're told that it will be broadcast again, broadcast on Monday at noon on NPR. Monday, coming Monday at noon. When we begin the... Uh, when the, the, the wait, excuse me, when the introduction of the, of the radio audience happens, I will uh, introduce the speaker to the radio audience. Mr. Mondale will speak for 20 minutes. At that uh, conclusion of his presentation, I'll, I'll reintroduce the forum to the listening audience. We'll have a moment. The ushers will collect your questions. Now, if you need to leave early at that break when the questions are coming forward during the radio program, that's a good time to slip out. And then we go right into the question and answer period. And Mr. Mondale has asked that uh, we have an extended Q&A period today. So some of our forum speakers tend to go on and on. Not today. <laughs> we want to have a dialogue with, uh, with the public gathered here. Before we begin, I want to be sure that all of your electronic devices have been turned off. Find those cell phones or pagers or whatever they are, as I am doing, and turn those to a silent mode or turn them off. Thank you very much. Following today's presentation, we invite you to join us for a light lunch in the Great Hall. You can find the Great Hall out the doors to your left, to your right. And if you would like to continue this conversation on, after the program is concluded, a small group discussion will be held in the Bates Room out the door to the left. The light lunch will be provided in that room. We're grateful to our friends at the Minnesota International Center for their ongoing collaboration with the forum. We especially want to thank Carol Byrne, president of the center. Carol is here, as is Carol Steinberg, community programs manager. 
they sponsor this ongoing conversation. Bill Davney will facilitate that. Thank you, Bill. After the forum, copies of Mr. Mondale's new book, The Good Fight, A Life in Liberal Politics, can be purchased from Majors and Quinn booksellers in the Cloister Hall that's out the door to your left. Mr. Mondale will be signing books further down in, the, in the, what's called the Heller Commons part of our building, and he'll be glad to meet you there and sign the book that you have just purchased. And finally, at the conclusion of today's forum, if you would help our ushers out by collecting uh, things that you leave in the pew, certainly your personal belongings, we often have things left here, but papers and other things, kind of leave it clean. Thanks. Thank you for being here. In a moment, we will begin today's Westminster Town Hall Forum. Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 30 years we have offered voices of conscience key issues in ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis. I'm the moderator of the forum. It is my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. Walter Mondale is one of our nation's most distinguished public servants. Born and raised in Minnesota, he holds a Doctor of Jurisprudence from the University of Minnesota Law School, he has served the people of Minnesota as Attorney General and U.S. Senator, and in 1976, he was elected the 42nd Vice President of the United States with President Jimmy Carter. In 1993, President Bill Clinton appointed him Ambassador to Japan. During four decades in public life, Mr. Mondale has played a leading role in America's most important movements for social change, civil rights, consumer protection, tax reform, environmentalism, and women's rights. And his years of service are captured in his new political autobiography, The Good Fight, A Life in Liberal Politics. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum a great public servant, a man of deep integrity and honor, the Honorable Walter F. Mondale. Thank you very much, uh, Tim, for that kind introduction. Uh, Joan and I love being members of Westminster. We've been members for years. We love it. And we are inspired by Tim Hart Anderson's leadership and of his colleagues. It's, it's a great part of our life, and it's glad to, we're glad to be back here today. By the way, um, last week I was out pounding nails with Jimmy Carter. And um, <laughs> in Minneapolis and St. Paul, and I wasn't surprised to see our minister, Tim Hart Anderson, out there pounding nails with the best of them. He's good at it. He always hits the nail on the head. And uh, <laughs> we're proud of you. Uh, I want to introduce one person, David Hoggy, uh, a brilliant um, editor at the Minneapolis Tribune, who for three years worked with me in writing this book. David, are you around? I know you're here. Okay, hiding in the back. Hiding in the back. Uh, the brilliant uh, Humphrey Institute political scientist, 
who encouraged me to write this book and was helping all the way through, Larry Jacobs. I think you're here, but anyway, thank you for all you've done. And to all of you, what a, what a wonderful turnout. I see so many friends and people who have participated in this remarkable Westminster Forum. Uh, I'm really honored to be here. The Good Fight is my memoir, but it's also a history covering a remarkable period in American life, a life in which Joan and I were blessed to participate here in the Senate, in the White House, and finally in Japan. As you know, I grew up in small towns in rural Minnesota. I know you've all been there, Salon, Heron Lake, and Elmore. I grew up living in parsonages, uh, where my dad was a minister and my mom ran the choir, and where, if they could catch us, the three boys attended Sunday school and Bible school. It was on to McAllister after that and the university, where I connected with Hubert Humphrey, Jane McCarthy, and Orville Freeman, and that remarkable new generation of Minnesotans who would change our state and our nation. I think it's fair to say that I was hooked on politics then, and I never stopped. At 32, I became the youngest attorney general in our history. We reformed the office to include broad responsibilities to protect the public against abuses. It's a reform that has remained in place. At 36, Joan and I went to Washington, where I replaced my dear friend and mentor, Hubert Humphrey, in the U.S. Senate. Arriving just in time for what some call the high tide of progressive government. We had 68 Democrats in the Senate, Johnson and Humphrey in the White House, and a progressive Supreme Court. And we really went to town. We adopted, <laughs> adopted the great Civil Rights Acts, fundamental environmental legislation, student assistance, food stamps, school lunches, Medicare and Medicaid, and a long list of other reforms. As a result, I am sure America became a profoundly fair safer, and more hopeful nation. I write, a, I write a lot in my book about Hubert Humphrey. We worked to get closely together for 40 years, and I think he may be Minnesota's most remarkable uh, uh, Minnesotan. Uh, Barry Goldwater, who was a good friend of his, said he used to listen to Hubert's speeches, and he clocked them at 250 words a minute, <laughs> with Gus up to 400. <laughs> we rejoiced when Hubert became vice president under Lyndon Johnson, but not for long. We lived through the bitter Vietnam War, the mixed blessing to Hubert of being Lyndon's vice president, the horrors of the assassination of Martin Luther King and then Bobby Kennedy, 
McCarthy's bid for the presidency, the miserable Chicago Convention, and Humphrey's near miss, near miss for the presidency. Back again in the Senate, I fought for the groundbreaking early childhood legislation, which I truly, truly believe would have helped millions of our disadvantaged children to prosper, but it was vetoed by my friend, Mr. Nixon. I believe we still need something like that for, our, for children who are not thriving in their early years, and we have a lot of that in this country, including our own nation, and I hope we can get with stronger efforts to help these kids open up their lives when it's most doable. I helped conduct the historic church committee hearings of the abuse of American rights by our own intelligence agencies. And before we were done, we established the Senate and House Intelligence Committees, the Federal Intelligence Surveillance Act, and the special FISA court to protect American rights. I learned something then, and I think we proved something then, that we can protect both American security and the sacred freedoms of our American people. In fact, I believe we must do both or we will have neither. Then I became Carter's vice presidential nominee. I debated Bob Dole, and can you believe it, we won. <laughs> I became the first vice president to move into the West Wing, working directly with the president, which is a big reform that still remains in effect. I think we got a lot done. We enacted basic energy reform, we normalized relations with China, ratified the Panama Canal treaties, saw to it that the Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty was approved, established an international human rights policy, dealt humanely with the boat people, many of whom live in Minnesota now, and we challenged South African apartheid. But while we were making progress, we suffered the heartaches of stagflation, the tragic capture of our embassy staff in Iran by fanatic Islamists. This was our nation's first experience with violent Islamic extremists. Then our rescue attempt failed, and we wait, had to wait 440 long, sad days before they were, were finally they were finally returned home with safety. I was with President up close every day for four years. I know President Carter. I admire him. And I've often said of those years, we told the truth, we obeyed the law, and kept the peace. And I think those rules are important. I think we did it. It was wonderful to be with him this past week. They've been doing these habitat trips every year together for 27 years. Next year, they're going to Haiti. And as someone once said that the trouble with Christianity is that it's never been tried. <laughs> well, the person who said that has not met the Carters because they're trying every day. Then Ted Kennedy challenged our bid for reelection. 
we had yet another divided convention, and Reagan won. I ran for president in 84, my third time on the national ticket, picked Geraldine Ferraro, the first woman in history to be on a major party ticket. This is a good audience. I debated Reagan twice, and can you believe it, I lost the election. (laughs) Our nearly four years in Tokyo were wonderful years for us. I had a chance to learn more about that remarkable nation, and Joan was the real ambassador. With her lifelong interest in the ceramics and the arts, she was a big hit in Japan. And when we had our final farewell reception to say goodbye, most of the people that came, came to say goodbye to Joan, and it was fun to watch it. During my career, I developed central principles that guided me, and as I wrote this memoir, I found those issues coming back all the time and centering themselves even better in my mind than before, and I'd like to talk about a few of them. I battled to sustain an open, just, and accountable society. And if there's one accomplishment my generation can feel good about, it is that we finally ended racial discrimination in America after 200 disgraceful years of slavery and official hatred. We stopped it. These were not cosmetic or paternalistic changes. We empowered previously denied Americans with equal power to exercise their rights just as fully and with just as much dignity and assurance as any other American. These were fundamental changes. I like the way Robert Carroll wrote about it, the Voting Rights Act, in his book about Lyndon Johnson. He said, Abraham Lincoln struck off the chains of black Americans. Lyndon Johnson led them into the voting booth, closed democracy's sacred curtain behind them, placed their hands upon the lever that gave them a hold on their own destiny, and made them at last and forever a true part of American life. We had to do it, and we did it. Our founders were deeply fearful of unaccountable power. And after those years in public life, so am I. Because they believed that men were not angels, as they put it. And if they were unchecked, they were apt to abuse power. All the system in our constitutions about checks and balances, about the veto power, about accountability, all of that is designed to make certain that we share an account for power when we're in high office. And I think it's essential to the success of our country. Madison wrote that a popular government without popular information or the means of acquiring it is but a prologue to a farce or a tragedy or both. If our government can hide from the Congress, the courts, and the public, it can and regrettably has violated the very laws it is sworn to uphold. So I say, hold 
all governments accountable. Over my lifetime, our nation has slipped in some tragic, ignorant, and deadly wars, and it's affected our generation greatly. We could all tell stories about it. Certainly in Vietnam that was the case, and in Iraq, and probably Afghanistan. Of course, we must have a strong military. I'm not a pacifist. But surely we must couple our military might with the wisdom and the restraint that sustains us as a smart power with moral stature and influence. And influence. And we've got to work on that. We've got to be a lot more careful to, when we go into these things to know what we're doing, know about the country, society, and bear in mind the toxicity of being an occupying power and the kind of forces that that unleashes. And we better get that straight before we go in because we're going to live with it. I believe that public trust is indispensable to good government. As Lincoln once said, with it, everything is possible. Without it, nothing is possible. I believe that trust is being squandered today by this spectacle of big money, oceans of it, compromising and buying the public process, paralyzing or bending decisions to fit its will. The Supreme Court has often said that Congress has the authority to pass laws to prevent corruption or the appearance of corruption. If they have that power, they better pass some laws right away and reassure Americans that this process is not up for sale. <laughs> Judge Learned Hand once wrote that the spirit of liberty is the spirit that is not too sure that it's right. I don't see enough of that spirit today. It seems to be more about the certainty of being absolutely right that we're dealing with. It, it doesn't work. We've got to have some idea of compromise, of listening, of learning, of a civil dialogue. That's essential. I don't see it enough of it today. In fact, I think we have harsh polarization, and we suffer today a paralysis of our nation's ability to act on fundamental problems. Our inability to make tough decisions in America is now causing our nation to slip, measured against other nations in crucial areas. Having been, for example, for, for maybe a century, the world's leader in the, the percentage of young people who graduate from college with college degrees, some of the other day noted we have now fallen to a humiliating 12th place among 36 developing countries, slipping in the one area where you all know we have to be number one. I'm not sure where our nation, which used to be proud of its civility and its ability to reach decent compromise, has come down this divisive road. But I believe it has something to do with converting political issues into religious issues. Substituting for civil debate, <laughs> substituting for civil debate the anger that can arise when issues are seen, seen as good versus evil. 
And I think we're paying a big price for that. I love the United States Senate. I was down there a few months ago testifying on the Rule 22, the filibuster rules that I think are being abused and paralyzing the Senate. And it's really disheartening to see how that body that's got to do these things we're talking about can't get anything done. Uh, almost 200 nominations for the bench, for key positions, just sitting there, based on holes put forth by nobody knows who. It, 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 it's, it, it was, uh, we got to do something about it. Tom Friedman reported recently from China about the astonishing progress being made in China. Higher education, bullet trains, solar panels, wind turbines, new convention centers, all kinds of stuff popping over there. And he said there's absolutely no reason our democracy should not be able to generate the kind of focus, legitimacy, unity, and togetherness to do big things. We've done it before, but we're not doing it now. I think he's right. We must change our direction. America has repeatedly shown remarkable resilience, and I'm very confident we'll find our way out of this. We have the power to restore ourselves. We can lead home again at home and abroad, and we must do so. Many years ago, when I was a brand new attorney general, I stood on the steps of the Minnesota Capitol to address a civil rights rally. The first civil rights rally, I believe, ever to occur on our Capitol steps. I closed my remarks by repeating the words of Paul the Apostle. I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. I certainly can't claim that I've met that high standard, but I know I tried. Thank you. Thank you, Walter Mondale. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, Senior Minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is former Vice President Walter Mondale. While the ushers collect questions from our in-house audience, I'd like to invite the radio audience to join us for our next forum on Thursday, November 4th at noon when CNN's senior political correspondent, Cindy Crowley, will discuss the midterm elections, what they, might, what they mean for America. And this will be just two days after the midterm elections. Mr. Mondale, if you would like to return to the pulpit now, I will present questions from our audience. You mentioned in your remarks, and it's a theme running throughout your book, that America needs, our democracy needs public trust. In, in order to function well. How does a leader, a political leader, engender public trust from his or her constituents? Um, first of all, uh, he should be trustworthy. Those are not mysterious words. 
Uh, I mean, you have to be as honest as you can. You have to tell the truth. You have to level with people. You have to try to be honest with them about the issues and the difficulties that, that you have and the challenges you want resolved. You have to lead government in a way that builds confidence in it. Uh, I talked about the money problem, the paralysis in the center, uh, in the Senate, the, um, the, uh, the just uh, the, the line between uh, down the center strip and the Senate is now like, like the Great China Wall. A leader has to try to try to reach across that. When I was in the Senate, we didn't have that. I'd say it was perfect then, but we worked on a bipartisan basis on everything. We'd have never gotten the civil rights laws without Republican support. Uh, and so I think that's what a leader has to do. And he has to try to spell out um, not only reforms in the process of government that make people trust it, but he also we have to get on the real issues. I talked about education. We've got energy. We've got uh, the global warming issues that are really uh, uh, tremendous, and we're 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 um, stalled right now. Um, we we have a big uh, deterioration in our infrastructure, as we found out in our bridge downtown, and yet we're doing very little to move ahead on that. Um, yeah, all those things, I think, go into public trust. I noticed, I mentioned in my uh, remarks about how the court said that we should pass laws to protect against corruption or the appearance of corruption. Those words were written by Sandra Day O'Connor, who earlier in her career had been a political officer in Arizona. And she knew and could write about why public trust is so important. You can feel it when you're in office. If people don't trust you, it, you're not going to get anywhere. And so every politician has to start right out. We all do. This is a problem we've all faced now. We've got to start right out making certain that we husband that basic need for public trust. Your remarks, you referred to my friend, Mr. Nixon, yeah. as he vetoed one of your pieces of legislation, and you also spoke of Hubert Humphrey's friend, Barry Goldwater. Could you comment on how civility in politics has been lost and hopefully how to restore it? I mentioned that, but, but we used to, I, I, you know, Howard Baker, Cliff Case, Jack Javits, Ed Brooke, Jim Pearson, Tom Keiko, um, Dick Schweitzer. Uh, I, I could list 20 senators that I can get along with, they can get along, and we, we agreed on the central problems, we disagree on issues, but we could sit down and work out decent compromise. And when, when, when we went home, the, the, the conversation seemed to me to be one that where the public wanted civility. It's not a mysterious concept. They wanted us to listen and learn and, and, and work together and get things done. Um, you know, the way it is now, some of these, I, I don't want to get into it, but I watch some of these uh, persons on uh, running for office, and if, if you had a child that behaved like that, you'd be worried about it. <laughs>
Here's a, a question from a student uh, at uh, Southwest High School, where your grandchild is yeah, a student. She does. After serving on the church committee, this is a heck of a question from a typical Minnesota high school student. After serving on the church committee, how do you feel about what happened under the Bush administration with the use of rendition and torture, and under the current administration, the use of assassination by CIA drones? Boom. Well, that's... <laughs> You can applaud the question if yeah, you like. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. My granddaughter goes to Southwest, and Barrett asked me to say hello. So uh, that's a wonderful question, and it's uh, one that should be answered directly. Um, whenever we get into problems overseas, that's when the pressure builds to pull power behind secret, secrecy and to exceed the powers that are granted by law. That, used, that was certainly the case um, earlier in our history. It's not a partisan issue. It's just a predictable certainty that that will happen. And what I heard all the time when in this committee's work and when I was in the vice president was that, well, you know, you have to give up some liberties to have others. And I'd always ask them, well, which liberties are you going to give up? The fact of it is that with these um, church committee reforms, CIA directors, FBI directors have all told me that it works very well, but it is accountable. Finally, in one way or another, they've got to go before that FISA court or before the Congress and report on what they've done. And I think that has been a very good thing for our country. And where we've lost our way as this question with, with the uh, torture and the black sites and uh, now with this crisis with uh, uh, the bombing in, in, um, in Afghanistan, some in Pakistan, where, where this is done without any accountability, I think it hurts us. And that's what Petraeus said when he testified the other day. He said, this stuff is non-biodegradable, and it gets in our way. We, we're not able to do as well as we should. It's a threat to our forces when we diminish our stature. Uh, there was a strong editorial in the New York Times the other day about getting some standards to measure and uh, control uh, the, the use of these uh, uh, bombers and so on in, in Afghanistan, so that we, and, and, and the possibility of, of, of uh, planning um, assassinations. Uh, we thought we had it controlled when our committee reported. I think they need, that committee needs to look at it again and get guidelines that do what I talked about. These are not easy issues. We've got a lot of nasty enemies around the world. They don't fight fair. And we have to be able to stand up to them. But I will say after 20 years in the inside of government, we can do that. It's doable. And we're much stronger when we do it than when we don't. Another question from a Southwest High School student. What is your view on privatizing Social Security? And do you agree with the view that says that the Social Security system is run in a similar fashion to a Ponzi scheme? 
I wonder, I wonder what my answer is going to be to that. Um, uh, I think Social Security has been one of the great success stories in American history. Uh, before Social <clears throat> Before Social Security was passed, uh, being a senior in America was a very treacherous experience. And before Medicare was passed, getting a major illness was like having an atomic bomb attack almost. We changed that in America. Uh, Social Security needs to be looked at in terms of long-term financing. I know that. It, it, we did that in the 80s. They need to do it again now. I think, suppose we had privatized Social Security in uh, about 10 years ago when they were so hot for it, and we put all, had put all our money in the stock market, and you were going to depend on that for your retirement, where do you think it would be? I, I think it's an idea to, that, you know, it's one of those ideas that had lead in it. Every t day they talked about it, it lost altitude, and I, 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 I repudiate the idea. Another question from a student. How would you compare and contrast the civil rights movement with gay rights movement today, don't ask, don't tell movement? Very good question. I think there's some similarities. The, the idea behind the civil rights law was sharing power, not just being paternalistic, as I mentioned, letting people have their own sense of assurance and of dignity. Uh, we have a real problem in the way we treat gays in America. Uh, and I don't understand the uh, don't ask, don't tell issue. I thought I heard the president say he wants to get rid of it. I heard the secretary of defense say he didn't want it. I heard the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff say he didn't want it. Now we've got a district court that said they didn't, that it's illegal. And in that opinion, the judge said, that discrimination in the armed services does not occur when people are being sent to combat. They're all good enough to go to combat. It's other environments where that question is asked. In the meantime, we leave gay Americans in a kind of no man's land. There or not there, sure, not sure. I don't think we should do that to Americans. Um, L. Franken said yesterday he thought we shouldn't appeal that district court decision. That could be one way of doing it. But I think with our nation committed to getting this done, with taking uh, many gays into the service, incidentally, while lowering our standards uh, on others that might have lower IQs or uh, moral problems, I think we ought to be straight on this thing, get it over with, and eliminate don't ask, don't tell. Mr. Mondale, do you believe the media accurately portray what's really happening in Washington, D.C.? Which media should we trust? Uh, oh, there's a lot of good reporters covering this Washington uh, very closely. There's, um, today, with the internet and so on, people who want to go to the trouble can get information like we never had it before. Uh, but you have to work at it. 
I mean, there's a lot of uh, confusion in Washington. There's a lot of gridlock in Washington. There's a lot of uh, harsh rhetoric, that, uh, misleading rhetoric. Um, and I don't know what to tell you except that this is something we have to face together. I think we, we're a free nation. We have a free press, free media. Take advantage of it and be the best citizen you can become. Now, a question about the Middle East. Uh, what do you think uh, are among the biggest obstacles to peace in the Middle East? Well, if we're talking about uh, Israel and Palestine, there are obviously problems on both sides. I think that Israel's got to start giving up on those West Bank settlements. I think... <laughs> There can be some compromise there, but I remember well that hardliner Sharon, who was the Prime Minister of Israel over 10 years ago, said, if we want a democratic state, Jewish state of Israel, we've got to get out of the West Bank. And he started doing that. And I, I think if we can't make progress on that, some kind of acceptable compromise, and it's all on those, you know, this has been negotiated ad nausea. It's all on paper. It's not a mystery what we should do, but it needs to be done. Similarly, I think on the Palestinian side, um, you know, the, uh, there's some extremists that won't accept Israel. Uh, I can understand why Israel uh, doesn't want to negotiate or does, can't accept that. They're a nation. They have a right to live. We should be supporting them. But, uh, and, and I want to make that clear, I've always supported uh, Israel and, and its right to exist and prosper. And if America didn't do that, uh, Israel would be in trouble. And I don't think that should ever be in doubt. But just as Carter negotiated the Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty, I think Obama is doing the right thing with George Mitchell and others to get on top of that and try to bring about a settlement to bring, if we could get Israel and Palestine, well, the independent state of Palestine, finally adjusting to some form of peace, I think it would really help us all over the world. This is a question for one of the students in the English language class. Uh, do you think the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan will be winding down soon? And what impact have these wars had on the relations with, between the U.S. and others in the world? I, I think uh, uh, the first attack on Afghanistan after 9-11 had world support. Uh, NATO, for the only time in their history, passed a resolution supporting us because I think not only the American people overwhelmingly supported it, but the people in the world realized that great uh, harm and injustice had been visited upon our America. And we had a right to go after the people that did it. I think when we went into Iraq, particularly when we tried to justify it on the grounds that Iraq did it, when they didn't do it, and on the grounds that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, when they didn't have weapons of mass destruction, and that, when they were, and that line of things that 
uh, I want to be careful with my words, they were just not true. And that war was sold to us on that basis. Um, and and, we, and we, we, we didn't, and I talked about this in my remarks, we did not think, th there's a lot of experts here. I've got a lot of people in the room here who worked with me in Japan. And they help me every day. Uh, because, and there are people in our State Department and scholars and so on know about these countries. We, it seems to me we're trying to learn about them the hard way. We should, we should really know what we're doing before we get into something with military strength. And now Afghanistan, the situation has changed, in my opinion. We went in there for the right reasons, and we, then we sort of half withdrew, which was wrong. And now, now we're in there escalating our presence there, and I don't see much evidence that we're getting anywhere. And there's so many discouraging things about it. I hope that the president will use his announced deadline date as a reason, unless things change, and I don't see it, to make good on pulling out of there when uh, 2011 comes. Question about your selection of uh Geraldine Ferraro as your running mate. Is the U.S. ready now to see a woman as vice president or president, in your opinion? Uh, first, I, I don't think this should be about identity politics. It's not about whether you're a woman or a man or whether you're black or white or whatever. It's about whether you're qualified and would be good at the job. What's been wrong is that we've deleted large sections of the American population based on discrimination and just not accepting the fact that among them might be talented people. So instead of looking at 100% of our talent, we look at 50% or 30%. So I think you know women have made a lot of progress in the last years. Uh, there's a lot of them in high office in Minnesota and in, um, in the legislature, in the Senate, and governors, and so on, and I think they're going to make a lot more progress. And yes, I think that we, uh, for the good of our nation and our future, we have to draw on our full resources. Women have shown they can do it, and um, let's get that out of our system. I remember as a young man when John Kennedy ran for president, and a lot of people told me, you know, you can't have a Catholic in that way. Some of you remember that? Yeah. They, they said, no, you know, they, um, they'll take orders from Rome. And, and, uh, and, and we had problems with that issue in Minnesota. We had a very close election, and Minnesota voted for Kennedy by about 20,000 votes, and we really worked on that. And within a year, I've never heard that issue raised again. They were wrong. It was denying us. And we now know that that was a false issue. And I think as soon as we can get this women's discrimination, other forms of discrimination out of our heads completely, the more we will prosper and the stronger we will be as a nation and the more the world will admire us. We you know, no other country is multinational like we are. We've got everything. 
And wherever you go around the world, they've got relatives here, and they know about us. And one of the greatest things we could do to serve America is always present an example that shows us in the best light, because the world will notice. What do you think is behind the rage and the uh, animation of the Tea Party activists? And is there anything that we might or you might learn from that? Well, you know, I, I do try to listen to them. I don't, I, don't, I don't claim to know exactly what their policies are. And I don't think it is a coherent uh, Tea Party or non-Tea Party. Uh, I was with Carter the other day. He pointed out that America's often had protest movements when times are tough, when people lose their jobs, can't keep their homes, um, can't have health care and so on. That's, that's really perilous. And it triggers um, uh, uncertainty in the American people. And I think that's partly what we have here. Uh, I wouldn't try to dismiss the Tea Party people uh, out of hand. I would try to listen to what they'd say, and if they'd listen to me, I'd like to talk to them about what our nation has to do with deal with its problems, about how we need government. These, some of these problems can't be handled just by ourselves, and how um, we have to do the best job possible, the most efficient problem uh, possible, and we have to be uh, subject to uh, uh, criticism and all the rest. But try to be a part of making America work, not just a part of having a fit. A listener asks, uh, since the death of Senator Paul Wellstone, the DFL has seemed to be in something of a tailspin. Uh, did the Humphrey-Mondale-Wellstone tradition in uh, DFL politics in this state go down with the plane and the Iron Range? Oh, no. I, I think that the loss of Paul and Sheila was a terrible blow, tragedy, uh, shock, um, and uh, a lot of us are not over it. And uh, the example he set um, not only served Minnesota but was an inspiration for all Americans and but I don't I don't think we've gone downhill yet one thing you have to remember about political issues as they change I mean if Hubert were alive today he wouldn't be campaigning on the issues he was campaigning on in 1948 you have to campaign on the questions that present themselves and have to be solved now often in different ways. I, I really like Amy, and I like Al Franken a lot, and I, I think we've got a good, uh, a good team in Washington. Uh, and, and I hear that from, from a lot of people. At what point in your life did you know you wanted a career in politics? What happened that made you believe you could do that? That's from a student. Yeah, I think it was in the uh, sophomore class at Elmore High School uh, when I was thinking what I was going to do when I graduated, and somehow I thought about running for office. So I'd say I was about 15 when I got the idea, 
I had to work on a little bit, but I've always, I think I've always wanted to be in politics. Another question from a student. What should our nation's youth do to help enact some of the changes that you've discussed today? Wonderful question. Uh, coming here, I appreciate that so much. It gives us all hope to know that young people are going to get engaged and help solve these problems. Most of the key issues in America that are the most distressing to me are issues that hit your generation more than they do mine. Uh, you'll have to live with that. The whole question of protecting the environment, dealing with global warming, uh, the quality of American education, um, the fairness and openness of American life, the, the trustworthiness of American politics, all of that, if we succeed, will benefit you and if we fail, you will pay a bigger price than my generation. So, several things. Do what you're doing today. Learn, listen, read, talk to your friends. Try to stay on top of issues. Uh, discuss them. I would hope, and some of you may want to go into politics, but you don't have to go into politics. There's so many ways that you can serve uh, our community and the state and the nation. Um, that almost anything you do in an honorable way is a help. So it, one thing that has always bothered me in uh, America, and I, was, I, st I helped support the, reducing the voting age to 18, because I thought, boy, uh, during the Vietnam War, if, we, if young people can have the power to vote, it will make us more aware of the consequences of these decisions and will push American society more toward a future-oriented way of doing things because, young people, you are our future. But you know what? You didn't vote. And we've always had a very low turnout of young people. A little higher last time, once in a while, the numbers are going up. So if you could encourage young people when they turn, when they're eligible, to vote, to help, help our country, to make it work, to deal with these problems I talked about. I'm sure you've got others that concern you. But help us move along and get to be, again, that nation that leads all other nations. I hope you, I really hope you'll do that. Now, Mr. Mondo, we've received a, a number of cards that don't exactly have questions but comments to you, such as, thank you for who you are, you're my hero, we appreciate read, read what you're standing Read the whole card. I suppose I could have made that into a question, why are you so many people's hero or something like that. Uh, uh, as a last question, can you say, uh, are you hopeful about America today? Yes, I am, and I said... I think we'll work our way out of this. We have the ability to do it. I think most of us have an idea of what's needed. Uh, we may differ about it, but the idea of, of uh, working together to achieve what America needs to do, I think, I think we know that. And, and I, with these young people here particularly, if they'll get involved, I, I am very confident that, that American potential, our capacity to change, the, uh, the edge that we have with our economy, with our high technology, with our democracy, with 
the strength of our education, which can be strengthened more, the, and many other, uh, the, the fact that we're a nation that doesn't separate on race and gender, that, that, and we're a nation that, where, the, where the public here represents the whole world. We, we really have it here, like no other country. Now we have to be sure we use it in a way to tap that strength again. Thank you, Walter Mondale.